Welcome to Insights of All Trades with Cole and Nick. This is where we talk to people we meet along our journeys through medicine, military service, sports, education, and beyond. We hope you enjoy. All right, I am here with Shaman Kirkland. Welcome to Insights of All Trades. Thanks for joining us. Um, I think the way we could start it out is kind of just getting a little bit of a background of who you are, what you've been through, what you've done, like experiences, all sorts of stuff. And then we can go into, you know, any sort of topic, you know, there's no boundaries, everything here. We can, we can talk about anything. So um, just start off by telling the audience a little bit about who you are and, and go from there. Great. Thanks, Nick. Glad to be here with you. Um, <clears throat> so me and Nick went to high school together. And at the time I had a plan for a political career. So I guess I'll just get into that story. Um, so I started out by volunteering. I went to school at the University of Southern Maine. And, uh, you know, there was just a really a lot of access to what was going on in politics. So I started volunteering with campaigns. And um, I guess maybe it was part of my Juniata County work ethic. Um, people weren't really used to people just working for free. So the Democratic Party heard about me and started recommending me for things. Um, and so I got a job as campaign manager for a district attorney race. And it was kind of a unique situation because people as young as me didn't get that job and there usually wasn't even a director for a campaign like that. But there was this push at that time for more progressive district attorneys across the country. And so this was, I heard someone who had been in the uh, political scene there for about 40 years, he said this is the biggest race that had ever happened because a Republican had been in charge before and they were trying to put this Democrat in. So what year is all this happening? This was 2019, okay. 2018. Okay, yeah. so yeah. like four years ago or so now. Yeah. It's crazy how time flies. I know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was it was just a weird, weird situation because I didn't really expect to be working on something like that, and I was just kind of pushed in. Um, so if we take it back a little bit, so in high school and before that, or when did you kind of start to decide that you were interested in politics and this is the route you wanted to take? Like. What drove you to Maine to start, you know, political stuff up there? And, you know, what kind of was the inspiration behind taking that campaign manager position? So I wanted to get involved in some sort of public service from the time I was like four or five, um, because it seemed to me at the time that was the best time to help people, best way to help people. Um, Is that something that you had kind of built up on your own or is it something that like kind of just instilled in you upon like your from your family and and people you've been around um or kind of hard to tell i guess it's hard to tell my dad really did not like politicians so i guess my thinking was kind of you know these people are doing a bad job in fact at the time when i was five i was like kofi and doing a really bad job and someone needs to replace him so i think <laughs> that was my first idea <laughs> nice okay so, but you know, growing up, you'd always had this kind of sense of wanting to help and, and wanting to like bring about change essentially. And you thought, you know, going into uh, college, you know, graduating high school that, you, you know, stepping into that political realm would be a great way to be able to do that. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So then you get, you get out to college and this campaign manager thing opens up and they ask you to do it. And so did you accept that position? Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. Um, and I managed the campaign over the course of about a year. Okay. Um, and then while managing the campaign, I got a lot of other opportunities. So I spoke at the Portland March for Our Lives and a guy that was running for Senate then saw me. So um, he, I don't want to get too disjointed here on the story. There's no, kind of, there's kind of two different tracks there. Um, I continued through that campaign working with local politics in Maine, but then also um, I started working with a group called Peace Jam, and then that was doing more international stuff. Okay. So there was kind of the two. So there. local politics in Maine, and then is the Senate position uh, individual is that for Maine State Senate, or is that for like National Senate stuff? That was for U.S. Senate. For U.S. Senate. Okay, yeah. so you're like took a big jump from yeah, like Attorney <laughs> General. To, okay, to Senate, and then also, is this separate the international stuff? Yeah, um, it was separate, but it kind of each thing played off the other because it okay. just was good for my resume to yeah. have both. Okay. And now this is while you're in college. Uh-huh, okay, yeah. so these are kind of like internship type things at all, or? Well, so the I got a pretty good salary for the U.S. Senate campaign. Um, I had a salary for the camp, the camp district attorney campaign, but it wasn't really that much. <laughs> but so, so these are actual like. So you said that you know you had been doing the volunteering and doing things for free, and that kind of is what caught people's eye. But now these are actual like paying gigs. These are things that. You could make a career out of this if you wanted to. Yeah, I think actually um, the U.S. Senate campaign, I believe I was the youngest American to have that role. Wow. So it was kind of (laughs) unbelievable for me because I really hadn't done that much. I honestly just give the credit to God because I was set up like in the perfect kind of positions um, to just kind of be there and be like, wow, wow, like... I had literally, I had just hoped and prayed, you know, that I would be able to get this job because this Senate campaign was in this position to uh, defeat Angus King. And well, I don't want too much into that, but basically it would have been huge politically. Okay. So from that, I could have gone anywhere in politics if I was the one that was the field director because I was the third in charge, so I was managing everything on the ground. Okay. And that's what really needed to happen in the campaign to make it be effective because you know the volunteer and everything it was just a mess um so yeah that was kind of just mind-blowing to be in that situation yeah that is nuts like who would have ever thought you know eight years ago when we were in high school like that this would end up that's crazy um and are you trying to like juggle taking classes and things like that at the same time as these basically like salaried position type things yeah so luckily a lot of the stuff i was doing with the senate campaign um was during the summer okay but before that and with the district attorney campaign i was working a job and taking classes wow so (laughs) it was kind of crazy and you didn't get burnt out at all (laughs) Uh, yeah, I did. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about like, uh, well, I, I guess I want to hear more about this international stuff as well. I know there's been kind of a little bit of a focus on your YouTube channel, talking about international politics, a lot of history, um, things like that. And it's a really interesting channel. We'll get back to that in, in a little while. But um, so I know that you, you do have a lot of experience internationally with things. Um, and then, of course, just local politics, um, you know, here at home politics type stuff. So talk to me kind of what did you learn from 
the experiences like internationally and then what what at home and what kind of like are the big takeaways you got out of that yeah so one of the biggest lessons a social lesson i learned specifically from international politics a lot of politicians would hate to hear this but politics is sociology it's all about how you deal with people so um I remember I was invited to meet with Oscar Arias, who's the um, president of Costa Rica. And so he had negotiated with Margaret Thatcher and he did the whole Iran country. He was the one negotiating that. Um, So he was really influential in politics through the Cold War and all that. And so I was really trying to observe him closely um, to see what his behavior was. And he when he had all of us there with him the biggest weapon that he used then was silence huh <laughs> that's crazy so it, so okay how did you get to this part in the first place like how did you get to go meet with him and like is this like a, a big group thing like what what happened there that's that seems nuts man <laughs> yeah so um there was so I was working with a gun safety group. Okay. Um, and they were in communication with Peace Jam. So Peace Jam invited me and 16 other gun safety activists from around the country. Um, so like the people, like victims from Parkland and places like that. Yeah. Um, and so we were all going there to meet with him in his house. And uh, yeah, we just wow. had a little while to to talk to him and you could just see how extraordinarily powerful like you, you see you know what would happen in a regular interaction with with like me and you yeah like there's certain stuff that we're going to do to show kindness or respect or whatever but this girl had just and maybe she shouldn't have but she went on about racially focused things and started crying and stuff and she spoke for like 15 minutes when she wasn't supposed to and he literally did not say a word he did not address her. He didn't. He didn't look at her until afterward. And the power that he wielded there was immense. Jeez. And it's like you wouldn't do this in a normal social interaction, but you know, in political things, it's just, yeah. So, what kind of message was he trying to say with that silence? To me, it was just. I think what he was trying to say is, you shouldn't have done this, and you're not going to get rewarded for this. Okay. And to me, it was a is a display of power that like. I have the ability to give attention to you or withhold it. And okay. because of who I am, there's a huge impact on okay. that. Okay. So what was the outcome of this meeting that you had with him? So we also met with Jody Williams, who was a Nobel Peace Laureate and had um, worked to ban landmines. Um, and so the the two of them were basically helping to lead us to the point where we got um, a gun safety group started, United Against Gun Violence. That was a little bit later, but this was the beginning of that process of us okay. having this gun safety group. Okay. All right, so then where you go from there? You know, you have this meeting with this giant international figure, and then, you know, where do you, where do you go from there? So I kind of kept going with... The both routes of the international and the local and the international led me to we were in Tallahassee with another meeting of this group 
Um, and Adrian Becker, who had been Bill Clinton's press secretary, met with me, and she, I guess, really liked what I was saying, and so she said, you know, you need to run for president, seriously. <laughs> I, I knew the president, so let me help you do this. Yeah. So I started working with her, and... Um, and you take this seriously? Like, you're like, you're like, you're serious about this, and then what are you feeling when she's telling you, you need to run for president someday, like... At are you the, like thinking like you, you're joking or like what do you like <laughs> <laughs> well at the time this was something I was seriously considering because the people I was with um, you know the, my, my peers they were in the same they're in the same boat yeah. um, one of the guys I went to school or that I was there with um, was going to Oxford and you know got the tr this big Truman scholarship and stuff so I was with these people and I could see, well, okay, these are going to be our future senators and future presidents and I can do what these people are doing. So at the time I thought, well, all right, yeah, I guess I'll do this. So now what kind of stuff did she want to have you doing? Like, cause obviously, you know, as running for president, well, you gotta be 35 or something along those lines, right? So what would she want you to be doing for these next 15 or so years before you can even consider running? Like, you know, just based on bare minimum requirements. Like, so what, what does she want you to start? Like, you know, start in the house of representatives, start in like in, in Senate, like where, what, what do you kind of do during that time? I mean, obviously like where, you know, that's not what you decide to do in the end, but I'm saying like, what would they want you to do for that time? If you wanted to run for president in say 15 years. Yeah. So to be, I should clarify that a lot of this wasn't her, like, like she said, you should run for president, but a lot of this wasn't her, like. So specifically prepping me okay. more, but to answer your question, because there was a lot of stuff like that, it seemed to me like she was really just trying to help uh, develop my career. So, and maybe like plant that seed in your mind, like this is something that I I would excel at doing, and then like kind of just bolster you up for that in the future. Yeah, okay. exactly. So um, one of the big things was um, we were working with Abby Disney on a project. She's Walt's granddaughter and oh so she um, basically didn't like the way Hollywood was doing things and she thought kind of as an insider that um, there needed to be more focus on gun violence and so Level Forward was this organization that Adrian and Abby were working with and the idea was to make um, films that had gun violence in them put money towards preventing gun violence based okay. on the number of guns they had. Sure, okay. So for a little while we were working on a program, um, like an app to do that. That didn't end up working very well. Um, and then she invited me to the Tony Awards because Oklahoma was one of the shows that was going to be there. And so they wanted to draw attention to gun violence, but the Tonys didn't want too much. So instead of having a message or whatever, they just had us sitting in the background there. Oh, <laughs> so, Did you um, have signs or anything? Like, no, we just okay. sat there. So they're just like, okay, gotcha. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, actually, the only thing we really did it was got like beer thrown on us. Nice. So you just, you know, <laughs> like yeah. actual like liquid beer thrown on you, not yeah. like a can of beer to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know why, but we just sat back there. And it, yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. So this is all kind of in preparation of getting you set up for a political career. You know, whether that ends up someday 
it, uh, you know, as it's sitting in the seat of the president or, you know, something else. But this is all kind of getting you shaped up to be a politician. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And the big thing there that was happening was actually behind the scenes because, you know, we were actually there for the footage of the Tonys, but people didn't really pay attention to us. But the important thing was that I was there with people like Matt Deesh, who started, um, who, who was one of the founders of March for Our Lives. Okay. So there was a lot of people there that were doing a lot of big stuff. And so we, we were in close contact all the time. And that was, that's what was really, that was the goal there, is to build these big connections. Okay. So just kind of more or less meeting these people like Matt Deesh, like these bigger figureheads in, you know, in this arena and then trying to kind of develop from there. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So then I know your story's not over yet. So like, where do you go from there then? So you're, you're kind of like still on the up and up with all this stuff. Um, you're kind of, you know, you're meeting these powerful people, these big figureheads, and then there's this behind the scenes stuff happening. So tell me about like what's going through your head, where like where are you leaning toward, what do you want to do at this time? So at that time, I was really starting to build a closer relationship with God, and that had seen me really opposed to a lot of the stuff that I had been doing, just feeling like it wasn't right. Um, I could get into a lot of the other details of stuff that I'd done. I was doing a lot of stuff, like I started a, a Peace Jam club up there. Um, but what, so like, tell me what doesn't feel right here. So like, I guess what you're, from what it sounds of it, you're like trying, you're advocating to end gun violence, you know, you're trying to help people in the end, like the, this developing your own career so that you can, you know, later on, you know, influence and help others. So what kind of is feeling not so right? Like what's kind of unsettling right at this point? Well, my family motto is action over words. And I was doing a lot of talking. And talking is fine, but I think it needs to be based in action. And, and to me, there was action. There's a lot of action, but the action was all around supporting someone who is talking and saying things. And the issue for me primarily is a lot of these people were saying things that were contrary to what they were doing. So for instance, you know, I'm not trying to pick on anyone, um, but the campaign I was working on um, in the car, he told me, I, I want us to be attacked. Um, and there was a whole thing of, you know, what, when the, the border thing was happening and the kids were being detained, um, this, you know, and there's nothing against him. You know, I like the guy, um, but, and I wasn't personally involved in this, but I kind of saw as the aftermath, um, that he went down there, uh, all the way down to Texas from Maine canceled the thing that I had been planning, putting, you know, countless hours overtime in planning that he was actually going to talk to the constituents and instead basically put on a show that he came with all these toys and things and he knew they weren't going to let him in. Hmm. Okay. So it, to me, it seemed like a publicity stunt. And then there, the, camp, the campaign I was working at, the district attorney campaign, we won the campaign a few days before the results were announced um, he resigned because he had committed sexual misconduct. Oh, jeez. It's like I live with this guy. Yeah. Jeez, man. So, and Oscar Arias. Um, I don't... It's basically been dropped now, but... Is this the... Sorry, just going yeah. back. Is this the Costa Rican president? Exactly. Okay, yeah, president right. of Costa Rica. There was a whole bunch of uh, accusations, sexual misconduct accusations against him. And... So you're, like, you're kind of seeing the dark and dirty of what power what powerful people you know you're seeing what 
happens to powerful people essentially or like what kind of people they are i guess whether or not the power shapes them into that or if these are the type of people that get into power like you're starting to see that there's some like dirtiness going on here exactly and what you said you know whether the power shapes them or not that was the biggest thing to me um and i feel like i was being led away from it is because i could see this is so nice for me this is so convenient all i have to do is talk and you know i have a tremendous amount of success that I can get from this and I can do all of that without actually helping anyone that was the dangerous thing that I realized maybe I could choose to actually help people but that was not necessary at all and in fact what I was starting to see is that helping people would often get in the way of me doing that job yeah that's just going to eat up your time that you can be devoting to you know publicity things like that exactly okay so you're kind of starting to feel a little uneasy about things here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So tell me what kind of was the tipping point? Where did you decide that that wasn't the life that you want to be living? So the main one, and we can get more into this, is that I was starting to get kind of disenfranchised with the with what the Democratic Party had been doing because I was seeing, you know, Donald Trump had a lot of issues, but I was just seeing this aggressive, hateful push against him basically just dehumanizing him and from my perspective i can er could easily see that this was a political game you know this is attacking this person like every way that you can attack them because that makes you look better and um so in the midst of that kind of the way that things go in politics like regardless of who's president so like when obama was president people are dehumanized and attacking him trump's president people dehumanize attacking him biden you know it's just I think that's kind of the way it goes, right? That's how politics works. You just, or not so much. Like I, I'm, I'm an outsider looking in. So, kind of from the inside, what do you, what? Tell me a little bit about what, like you think, the true, what, what's kind of going on in politics. I think you're right there. What my biggest issue was is that, what the reason I had been a Democrat for so long is because we were the side that didn't behave that way. Okay. We were supposed to be the side that held ourselves to a higher standard. When they go low, we go high. Mm-hmm. And we weren't doing that at all. But also, the discrepancy here was is that this was one of the strongest instances. And the reason is because Trump was vulnerable. Okay. That's why. Because he said things that made him look like an idiot and they took advantage of that. And it also played into demonizing the people I had loved and grew up with. Okay. So that was yeah. my my issue there, and so basically what it caused me to do is um, start to be really questionable of the whole thing. And so I was invited um, to a uh, so basically it was a big democracy event, and um, there was people like Elizabeth Warren and Abraham Kendi and um, just all these other people that you know big politicians, um, Michael Bloomberg. And so we were supposed to be talking about Oklahoma, um, but then we're also, and but it was going to tie into gun violence and some other issues. Um, and so I was kind of feeling a little bit skeptical about the whole thing because of that, because I felt like, you know, if I'm going to be here with these people, if I'm going to be straightforward, I'm going to say things they really don't like. And that's not what my job to do here is, you know, it's not to start a fight. Um, but the biggest thing was is that at the time I had read this story about um, a family out in California that had been immigrants and their house had burned down in a fire and 
um, they were in need of help. And so I called this guy and I talked to him and I said, you know, I've got some land out here. Maybe you can stay. Um, and so it was kind of those two things that like, like there's real time things happening. Like there's this guy that just lost his whole property, his whole community did. Like there may, I don't know, but there's a chance here for me to help these people. And then there's this chance for me to go. And basically from my point of view, if I were to have gone and done this, it would have been the huge setup. I mean, the people that ran for president and everything, I would have been right there. So those were my two options pretty much. I maybe could have done both, but at the time I kind of just thought, you know, this is inconsistent. The whole thing from the political talking perspective is inconsistent. It's hard to say whether it's actually gonna help anyone, but then on the other hand, I have things that I can actually do that are gonna tangibly help people. So that was kind of the breaking point. And then I just said, you know, I, I have other things I need to focus on. And, you know, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to do this anymore. Okay. So what came of this family in California? Um, he, ended, he said that, you know, he was okay and he was going to take care of himself. Um, you know, he said that that was his example to his kids. You know, we take care of ourselves. Amazing, amazing, inspiring guy. Um, so he, you know, he, they didn't end up coming up here or anything. But at this point, you'd already made up your mind that you were kind of done. Yeah, that was kind of just, that kind of pushed it, but yeah. I was already not happy with the okay. whole thing. So you kind of just decided you were going to get out of the game. Um, do you leave that door open in the future? Is it something you still would consider going back into politics, you know, whether at just the bare bones local level or anything you know beyond that is it or did you completely write it off now altogether i leave it open because i think the only time in which being a politician is worth anything is if you're a public servant and a servant isn't there to serve themselves a servant comes in when there's need somewhere mm. and so if i saw opportunity um in the future where i could actually have some kind of good there and also when i felt like i was leading from a position of action that i could actually say okay i am really doing things that if i was not a politician would be enough to make me some that you can respect if that's the point then i say okay you can be in this position but otherwise don't because you know there's so much weight here there's so much influence here um that in my mind it really needs to be those two things that you're capable um, based on action and that there's an actual need here that you can come in and for instance you know right now in Congress if I were in my mind to be advocating for the things that are going to move the country in the right direction I wouldn't be getting any steam because there wouldn't be an uh, there wouldn't be enough people supporting that so to me it's just about the time there's a few times I feel in American history when someone can come in and push for something that's really going to help the American people. So if something like that happened, then I would consider it. So doesn't it feel like now is a good time? I mean, it seems like the whole country's in turmoil. The whole world's in turmoil, essentially. You know, based on, you know, it doesn't matter someone's opinion or not, but just, you know, the era, the time period, the Trump presidency did kind of create this big divide, essentially, through the country. Um, you know, the COVID pandemic has really just isolated people. It's made people feel really uneasy. People feel unsafe. Um, you know, uh, we had the other election uh, when Biden got in, that further division. You know, of course, we've had the George Floyd protests, the racism in America. There's all these things that are going on. 
and wouldn't now be a good time to you know get someone that's clear of all of these like you know um you know like bad history bad bad parts of their past like all these scandals things like that wouldn't it now be a good time for someone to come in step in someone like yourself that knows like kind of how it works but also has these values these ideas um, or do you think that just the way that things are run there's just no room for that I think yeah what you just said there I think is the main problem is that you know well firstly if I were to be involved now because of my age I would be the person that's being told what to do, not the person who's telling people what to do. Um, but also, um, I feel like there just isn't so much of a place for that because ultimately, from my perspective, the issue is that Democrats and Republicans actually have way more in common with each other than that. I'm talking about senators represented mm -hmm. way more in, in common with each other than they have with the American people. Right. So if I were to be in there saying all the perfect things, then I still feel like it wouldn't move things in the right direction because there is so much power focused around the elite in America right now, more so than ever before, in my opinion. There's just this massive, massive momentum for them to get what they want. And so for me to get in there, I feel like I'm just going to get stomped. And I'm fine with getting stomped, but not for no reason. Yeah. Because, I mean, I, I agree with what you said. I mean, at the end of the day, Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi are better friends than they are with any other just normal American. Or same, like, you know, you see the pictures of Trump with Hillary and Bill Clinton. And, like, you just see that, like, the... It's kind of, you know, they can put on the show for the public that, you know, oh, we hate this person, we hate each other. But then at the end of the day, they still have these pictures together at the resorts. They still spend, I mean, they're co-workers, the senators, the, uh, you know, representatives. They're working with each other every day. Of course, they're going to get close to each other and things like that. Like, they've gotten to the same place through the same means, essentially. Just They just put a different label on it. So I get what you're saying there. Do you feel like there's no room for anyone like just outside of that camp of people? Like, do you feel like there's not room for someone to come in and actually like bring about real change? Not now. Okay. Unfortunately. And so what needs to change for that to happen? I think we need to reap what we've sown. I hate to say it, but I think that America has been moving in a bad direction for a long time and I think that that has consequences and those consequences are starting to play themselves out and you need to let those things play themselves out in order to deal with them. Um, I think that we're going to see a lot of historically significant things happening in America around the world pretty soon here. Um, I think this is a storm that's just been building up. That's something that's inevitable. I mean, you could say even now that this is major history going on, especially the COVID pandemic, um, you know, the protests, um, even like the January 6th, um, just all sorts of stuff that are going to go down in history books. You know, kids, you know, 10, 15 years from now are going to learn about this in their American history. Um, so... You know, you could say that, like, you think, I guess is what I'm saying, you think this is going to keep going. This is going to get even more, essentially, like, you know, um, spontaneous, more, you know, crazy, essentially. 
Yeah, I hate to say it, but it seems to me like this is just small cake so far, or small potatoes, whatever they say. Yeah. Um, well, and so I've been watching your YouTube channel, which um, I don't want to forget about that. We'll plug that um, here as well. But I've been watching that, and what you know, one of the first videos you posted was about you know this potential World War Three going on. Um, we've got these major adversaries, you know, overseas, you know, whether it's China, Russia, Iran. Those are the three that you talk about, but. You know, there's all these different, um, you know, international issues going on, and we also have all these domestic issues here in the U.S. Feels like we're not united at all. We're, I mean, you know, I'm only 25 years old, so I can't say that you know this doesn't mean a whole lot. But it feels like this is the most divided we've ever been, and look the way I feel. Like, but then again, like I also wonder is like, is everything so crazy now, or am I just more aware of it because now I'm an adult? You know, like. <laughs> Was it just this, you know, like 9-11, that kind of stuff growing up? Like, I'm sure that felt to a 25-year-old then that like, wow, this everything is insane right now. The world is going crazy. You know, we enter a war with Iraq, Afghanistan, you know, like it's got to feel pretty crazy then. So like, is this just another normal part of history or is this like a bigger thing like your World War One, your World War Two type stuff? Or is this... You know, not to downplay, obviously, 9-11, that's like a major historic event, and not to downplay the, um, you know, the war in Iraq, the war in Af- Afghanistan, but to have the actual entire world at war, is that something that you think is kind of brewing again? I do. Okay. Um, I think that it's just one of the symptoms, one of the most prominent symptoms, but I would say that this is... Yes, I think I think you're right in saying that the world has always been kind of messed up and very dangerous. I think that this is so particularly dangerous because all those things are just compounding, compounding, compounding. And there's some really unique setups here that cause me to believe that we're going to experience those you know like world war one world two like huge times in world history um pivotal times in world history to me everything is building up to us experiencing the most pivotal of the pivotal pivotal times in in world history so even bigger than 1940s you know world war two that kind of stuff like even bigger you think i think so because if you look at just what we have now in terms of technology the increase in technology, the increase in globalism, all of these things mean that on the one hand, a world war would probably be a truly a world war. I mean, the other ones were a lot around the world, but I think probably every part in the world now, but also just how deep it can go. People couldn't, you couldn't get into America back then, but now you can see with the solar wind hacks and all the other hacks, you know, colonial pipeline hack, that it can get down deep into American society, into society everywhere and impact everything. And that's, you know, the, the economy too. Um, the economy has been moving in this direction of people being more and more reliant on this market. And I think that honestly, we're looking at something similar to a Great Depression coming okay. again. Okay. So, well, that's scary. I mean, but I, I don't think many people would necessarily debate you on that that because i think a lot of people are feeling that there's something building i don't you know i i don't think anyone knows what's going to happen you know um but i think everyone does feel like this uneasiness going on especially since the pandemic started um and maybe even a little before that as well um but 
what you're kind of talking about is more of like a cyber type warfare, right? Like, so if you're talking about people, if you're talking about attacks actually getting into America based on these hacks, things like that, do you ever see any sort of like boots on the ground type warfare ever happening again? Because there's so much cyber attacks, so much cyber warfare. Everyone's so entrenched on their phone. Like, you know, people, myself included, spend hours and hours and hours a day on their phone. You know, 5G just rolled out a couple weeks ago. Um, you know, meta is out, the metaverse is out, everyone's buying NFTs, cryptocurrency, um, you know, living in a virtual world, essentially. Um, is there ever going to be that physical boots on the ground warfare again? Or is it all going to be like, oh, we shut down the internet, we shut down your, you know, your metaverse, like that kind of stuff. But what do you kind of see happening? Like, is that how it starts? And then it moves on to the actual, like what were traditional warfare type stuff? Um, where do you see this all kind of going? Yeah, I would say the cyber stuff is just the beginning and we've already seen it starting to happen. Um, but I absolutely believe that it's going to turn to boots on the ground. And the reason why is because all of these things still, you know, all the cyber and everything like that, in my mind, still doesn't strike to the heart of the main issue, which is, to me, it's all about power. And you can take away some of people's power with cyber warfare, but ultimately, that's the aim is to destabilize. You're not, you can't take over a country with cyber warfare. You can lock it down, you can hurt it, but you can't take it over. Why did you do those things? So that you could take it over. Mm. It's just the ends to the means, and the means is what it's always been. And it's, you know, because of the Cold War and because of the nature of those things, I think that it's given people like China and Russia a really big advantage is that everyone is saying, oh, we're not going to have a war. But what I would say points to the contrary is that, um, you know, the doomsday clock. Um, the doomsday, the, the people who are in charge of the doomsday clock, there's a lot of governor of California, a lot of other people involved with that. So tell and, me about this a little bit, like explain this a little bit for the listeners, for myself, like what exactly do you mean by the doomsday clock and, and things like that? Yeah, so there's a clock that's basically counting down the minutes to, to midnight. It's like a scale of how close we are to nuclear Armageddon. Okay, so um, it, it, so the doomsday in this sense is nuclear Armageddon. It's not doomsday from any other cause. It's only yeah. Nuclear, okay. They okay. have some uh, unavoidable connections, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so you don't build. I'm, I guess what I'm saying is you're not building in like. So you'll hear dooms doomsday people saying, you know, we have X Y Z like. I don't know if this is not correct, but like say, we, oh, we have 50 years left and unless we stop climate change, you know, the world's going to burn up or, you know, we have, you know, 50 years until, uh, you know, a meteor, catastrophic meteor hits the earth. Like this isn't being factored into the doomsday clock. It's just the nuclear Armageddon is what you're talking about. Well, actually, that's a good question because I think they're probably considering more things now. Okay. Um, I can't say for certain. I, I I know their primary focus has always been like major power conflict. Um, How long does this date back? The Doomsday Clock. Oh, I am not completely sure. It's Cold War period. Okay. Um, probably. If I had to guess, I'd say sixties, but don't quote me on that. Okay. Um. So actually, one of the professors that I worked with had had been teaching at Harvard before, and she had worked on the Doomsday Clock then. Um. So. She said that we're now, I think at the time we were like three minutes from midnight. Um, 
So we're, we're getting extraordinarily close based on their assessments. But to me, one of the pivotal things is, is that they said mutually assured destruction is no longer relevant because people are not going to choose to go to a nuclear war because no one can win. That does not mean that they're not going to try to gain power. And that was solidified by the fact that by the invitation of Russia, China, the United States, Britain, France, all the world powers just recently, uh, I think it was in January, came together and said they agreed we don't want nuclear warfare because no one can win. But what are they doing while they're saying that? Yeah, they're still building nukes. They're, put, they're building nukes, and yeah. Russia is putting over 100,000 troops on Ukraine's border. Yeah. So it's it's become abundantly clear. And, and meanwhile, I mean, China is saying we will use force if we need to. All these people are saying we'll use force. So they've specified no nuclear warfare. Great. So what does that mean? That means we're not going to get into a situation in which the whole world is blown up, obviously, because that doesn't help anyone. Yeah. But that means that they are still willing to send hundreds of thousands of millions of people to their deaths to meet their political ends. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. And you were talking about kind of like waiting, you know, these powers, these people were kind of waiting till there's destabilization. So doesn't everything feel pretty destabilized right now? Like... You know, especially, I mean, I, I'm not super familiar as far as international and world events, but just here at home, it feels like, I've already touched on this, but it feels like everyone's so divided, um, you know, about literally everything. So, um, doesn't that seem like, I mean, we could put the tinfoil hat on even and just say like, did China or like one of these big powers, did China release a coronavirus into the world to destabilize things and then now everything's like crazy and you, you know, you go out and you can capitalize on that. You know, probably not, but maybe, you know, like there's these things that we, we can think about. Um, I guess like what, I, what I'm trying to say is like, what better opportunity are they waiting for? If they really want to start, you know, invading or start attacking or whatever you want to do. Um, what I mean, what, what more are you waiting for? It feels really unstable right now. I would be shocked if a major move wasn't carried out this year. Uh, it's probably going to be this winter. So, yeah, to answer that question, I would say it, 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 there is tremendous instability, and they're taking advantage of that now. So I would say they've already made their move. They're just getting started on their move. Okay. So, like, you could see a couple instances, like, for instance, this Taiwan-China thing is not new. Um, and this Russia-Ukraine thing. And, yeah, yeah. I mean, none of this stuff is new, but so if you, if you, if you look at China. So recently, uh, 2018, there was almost no air incursions inside of uh, Taiwan. Ch ch so to specify, um, it's called gray zone warfare, where China will send in warplanes basically in Taiwan's air identification zone, so they have to send planes to respond to them. And so it's really wearing down Taiwan's defense cap capabilities. Okay. So, 20, so at first they weren't even really monitor monitoring them, but 2018 there was almost nothing. 2019 they increased. 2020, they re I mean, there I think it was like 600. 2021, mm. it's over 1,000. And now there's already been several hundred at the beginning of 2022. Mm. So like, and that's just one tiny example, yeah. but so they are pushing the envelope on so many issues that it's just, you can see in my opinion, is just priming them up. The same thing with Russia. Russia has been saying forever, 
you know, don't expand NATO, don't expand NATO. We're going to do something if you if you keep expanding NATO. But now it's just it's this perfect situation for them. Um, you know, Crimea was huge. Them taking annexing Crimea was already huge, and that was the beginning of it. But to me, all of this stuff is an example of them taking advantage of this disunity. It's just in the early stages. Okay. And that, in large part, that allows, um, I think, a lot of people to not be ready for a threat of the severity. Because from our perspective, Americans want to avoid war at any cost. We don't want it at all. Politicians don't want it. And that's abundantly clear. I mean, who does, though, you know? I would say um, that the leadership around the world, especially in the eastern part of the world, wants it. Because it gives them tremendous advantages in that they have been the underdogs mm. for, you know, decades and decades and decades. Russia didn't have the capability throughout the Cold War to really confront the United States. It, the whole, it was a power show, but everyone knew then that Russia would get destroyed if they went to war with us. Mm. We were way too strong. We had way too many allies. And not, not today, you don't think so? I think it would be a, I think it would be a difficult challenge today because... Okay. China and this this is in my opinion our weakness started after World War II. Why? Because we got cocky and we started to underestimate our enemies. Okay. And so that's been because being we kind played of just on. walked in and clean slate there with with World War II, and then you know no one ever besides Pearl Harbor, you know no one ever made it to American soil that were our adversaries. So. We just go and kick some butt, and then, you know, it's 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 over. Yeah. Yeah. But now, you know, now that there's more, maybe planning, maybe more intelligence, things like that involved. You know, there's been seventy, eighty years for these countries, these places to build up and, and become a more formidable foe, essentially. And if you if you look, so look at Iran. Iran, if Iran did not have the United States and the West in the Middle East, Iran would be running the show. Think of how much of an advantage that is to them. Especially the biggest thing here is that these are countries with authoritarian leaders. So it's not what's about what's good for the people. It's about what's good for who's in charge. And they can twist things like, up, you know, for Russia. The majority of Russians, I was looking at polls, the majority of Russians believe that, you know, Putin is defending defending the country that the threat is coming from the west so regardless of what the reality is these people can come up with a good reason to go to war mm-hmm. and they have so much to gain from it yeah. in every instance and it's hard to say how much is propaganda how much is just you know love for country those kind of things especially i mean even here in the u.s it's like how much of the information that we're getting about international you know about other countries international affairs how much of that is american propaganda and stuff you know for us to see and feel um you know i think everyone can agree the news isn't necessarily your best source of actual news you know like especially in the last five ten years it's really seemed to go downhill um uh you know both sides politically but i mean as a country you know as a whole what does that mean for international news what does that mean for like what kind of stuff we're consuming now I know that the internet's out there and you know you can kind of fact check things, you can look things up, you can get other sources, but not many people have the time to do that, and not many people will do that or you know even have the motivation I guess 
because you know obviously like scary news or or um, confirmation bias news like that kind of stuff all feeds into what you want to consume it's not necessarily what's correct what's true that you want to get you want to get what's aligning with my viewpoints what's aligning with what i want to see what's aligning with you know really triggering that dopamine rush what's triggering that um that thought in my head that you know oh that's you know causing me a little bit of anxiety i better follow this news more and give it more clicks you know there's just so much that builds into it um and it kind of just puts everyone like at in this in this state of like what is actually going on what is true what is this scare tactics what you know what should be we actually be worried about are we so divided that you know I say we're divided because I see it on the news. I don't know if like anyone that I talk to, pretty much everyone I talk to, you know, I get along with fine. You know, it doesn't feel like I'm not seeing a bunch of people fighting about a bunch of things like face to face. You see it on the news all the time. So I guess like, I don't know, this isn't really much of a question. I'm just kind of like saying what I'm observing, but it seems like there's not really a great solution to that. And then on top of it, we have all these international issues going on and we have a lot of other domestic stuff going on. It's just like, where do we focus our energy? Where do we focus our attention? And what can we even do? You know, like two guys sitting here in Juniata County, what can we do to, you know, maintain our way of life, um, make people's lives better? I think that's, you know, a common goal between us, like helping people, making everyone's life a little easier. Um, and you know, like, where do we go from here? It, it just seems like everything's scary. Everything's just driving people to their house to stay on their phone, stay on their computer, stay on their TV. Don't go outside. Don't go see people. Don't, you know, you might spread a virus. You might get into a fight over politics. You might, you know, don't go overseas. It's not safe to go to those countries. Like, what do we do, man? Like, where do we go from here? It seems to me like this issue that you're describing in the way that you're describing it is really showing that a lot of the conflict and a lot of the issues are coming from outside from a from away from us they're being created by people that don't have a close interaction with the majority of humans around the whole world are doing so to me and and so so, so exactly what you're saying the inspiration is to let's disconnect from this Let's get away from this. But what that allows is that allows these people to control our world. Mm -hmm. And this is what's been happening through the world throughout history. A tiny, tiny percentage of people have been controlling what happens for everyone else. So I say the solution is for us, for everyday, I guess this is an example of it now, everyday Americans working together, building community. Um, you know, I really think that the important thing is for us to actually be looking at each other face to face to know, hey, they were lying. When they said that Republicans and Democrats around America were divided, they were lying. That's not true. We're divided in ideas, and that becomes true, and I think that that's what gives them the power. That's why you have conflicts. You have people coming together, you know, if you look at, you know, protests and things like that. You have people fighting and clashing and yelling at each other. Their conflict is not based around what this person thinks or what the other person thinks. Their conflict is around what they have heard the other person thinks. Yeah. And most of the time, it's just all, it all comes down to narratives. There is, there's so much, in my opinion, isn't actually an agree, a disagreement between American people, but there's the image of a disagreement. And I think I'm, just the fact that like disagreement, I think diversity of opinion, disagreement on things is a valuable thing. I think that you need that to get more progress. You need that to advance 
you need different thoughts. You can't have everyone, you know, if the entire country is all Republican, the entire country is all Democrat, whatever, you're going to only have that side of things and the country's going to go in that in that way and that's, you know, there's never going to be any challenges toward it. There's never going to be anyone like speaking against it, okay? So I think that having that diversity of opinion, that diversity of thought, um, just the conversations I think is important. The issue is that everyone gets so heated about it and mm. everyone gets so like upset. Um, and I think like what you're saying is it's all coming from the outside. It's all driving it into that. You see these things on the news, like somebody wearing a MAGA hat gets punched in the face or vice versa. Like someone that's wearing a MAGA hat punches someone else in the face because they're like, you know, they don't, they're not, you know, one's a Republican, one's a Democrat and they're like, physically fighting like you see these things in the news that makes you think like oh everyone in that camp is bad and vice versa you know exactly um so i don't know like there's is there a solution to that i know like what you said we need to kind of build community we need to be able to see things face to face and you would think that having the internet and having everyone being so connected online and everything that would have helped that but it only seems like it's made things worse yeah, I think the internet really just can't do the job for so many reasons because it's so easy to say stuff like that. It's so easy not to not connect with people. Um, and I think specifically it's so easy not to connect with people in a deep way because I think there's just something that is completely different about being here and having a personal interaction um, than with going and saying something online. Yeah. So I think really if you... I think it needs to be so much more in depth that so many Americans that I know, they have you know some people that they like, especially when they get older, they have a couple people that they like, other family that they see every now and then, and everyone else, the interaction is just on a surface level. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think that the key here in order for us to do something good is to have an American people that are united, that can stand together and move in the right direction and be cognizant of the fact that leadership is failing. I think that there's a lot of people that, you know, are getting the support of the American people when they shouldn't. And I think the primary reason for that is that American people aren't bound together enough. I think if, you know, first of all, like I said, sociology, politics is sociology. If every single American understood the sociology of a politician then they could sit up and they could look and see that the majority of those people are spineless i'm not going to keep going on yeah. whatever i'm not going to i'm not going to insult people whatever yeah. all i want to say is that they wouldn't vote for them yeah right and and when there was actual leadership those people in my mind if 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 people were more tied together like abraham lincoln totally different day i don't think abraham lincoln from my knowledge he didn't even campaign mm. people just knew about abraham lincoln because he did a good job mm. and so i think that if we had that deep connection with americans that you know i love the farmers market we have here more farmers markets more community events americans like interacting with each other closely and dealing with the issues because i think the big reason that we don't want to interact with people is because a lot of a lot of people like either hate or think they hate everyone around them mm -hmm. and that causes us not to deal with these issues and then i think it just leads to a divided society which then just builds out builds out builds out on every level to more division yeah agreed I just want to shift gears a little bit. I know we've been talking about a lot of international stuff and some scary stuff. Um, 
But there's also a lot going on here at home. Um, and I kind of want to get back to your story too. So, so you're, you know, you're, you're into this realm of politics and you decide it's not really for you. And then you come back to Juniata County and start running the, the farm again that you grew up on. So like, tell me where, like, where did that come from? What, you know, what inspired you to come back and, and take up this, you know, what many would call like a simpler style of life, like a, a more like, you know, like out of the big cities and everything and just kind of back to the countryside. So tell me what kind of brought you back home. So it felt like that as soon as the political career really started to get going, I started hearing this little voice inside of me, just something telling me, like, go home. And I feel like it was God calling me, and the voice just got, started getting louder and louder and more and more clear until there was nothing else I could do. I was like, I, I have to do this. Um, and so that was the biggest inspiration. Um, I started reading the Bible, and that caused me to just see that the priorities really need to be around the good you're doing for other people rather than just to me I think I had a lot of issues in my brain that you know I was seeing things from my perspective and so I was really thinking I have the solutions I just need to tell people the solutions and everything will be fine um, but <laughs> I really think I needed a lot of doses of humility um, and so a lot of it was really just okay I need to come down here and really learn a lot about myself if I'm going to be someone that can do good for people as a leader. And so, um, you know, I just live basically. Um, I don't have, I don't, I don't have running water in this house. Um, you run off solar panel energy. And, yeah, yeah and on a wood stove. And. I cut all my wood with that axe over there. Like everything is, I, I keep almost no money. I didn't have a, a truck until a little while. I went years without a car. Um, so yeah, that was basically just me figuring myself out as much as I could. And then recently, I started. Um, I call this place the Havens now. So. I'll have events and stuff like I have a there's a community garden down there um, that I started with community partnerships in Lewistown. Um, like I said, someone might move into one of the cabins up here, and I just you know have events and stuff. People, you know, people who have been having just friends and people who have been having difficulties and stuff with life just come here, and you know I support them and stuff like that. So I kind of <laughs> realized like, wow, I feel way more uh, fulfilled in the fact that I can say, like specifically, I know a friend I can say, you know, this person would have been dead if it wasn't for me. Like mm -hmm. this person, t like what this person was going through, that is way better than any of those other things for me. So yeah. it's like, yeah, this is the real priority in my mind. It's almost, it, it kind of like sounds to me almost like someone that goes off on like a meditative or like a monk like trip and just kind of like finding themselves that kind of thing like going out and and just being one with them with nature one with themselves that kind of stuff um, it kind of reminds me of something like that you know you're kind of living um, off the grid and and just you know doing things that are important to you and important to um, just developing yourself and and the people around you and supporting others and it, it's awesome, man. I really applaud you for for doing that, and I think it's you know a very cool thing. Um, I also want to kind of touch on a point you you mentioned, like um, you mentioned God and reading the Bible and things like that. And I, I know one of the um, 
one of your videos on YouTube, you had talked about religion and, and science and, um, and kind of like had talked about, um, you know, growing up and, and in years past, how you had uh, followed Hinduism and Buddhism and then, um, Christianity. So, um, is that something you would want to talk a little bit about? Like kind of what led you to that pathway? What kind of things, like what kind of, um, you know, takeaways you get from, from various religions and, and, and things like that. Uh, I think that'd be a pretty cool conversation. I haven't, you know, talked to a lot of people that have had, um, uh, um, like a background in three different, uh, religions and, and someone with as much knowledge as yourself. Um, I think it would be an interesting, uh, conversation. Yeah, I would love, um, I would love, I guess, for us to break up our time, like, my dream situation here would be for us to talk about that and to talk about the race issue. Yes, on this. yeah, we need okay. to, we definitely need to talk about both. Okay, um, and we we have as much time as as you have. So um, you know, if you want to start, we can start with with the race issue, um, and then we can kind of talk um, more on the religion aspect later. Um, or either way, it's, it's, it's up to you. Yeah, let's do it that way. Okay, awesome. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah, so take it away then. Okay, great. So. Yeah, um, my perspective on race, I think, is pretty unique because, so I'll just give some of my backstory. My grandfather was, basically, he did some things, basically, to keep black people out of moving into certain neighborhoods. Um, he disowned my father and our whole family because my mother is black. Um, my dad started running away when he was about nine because he was just so opposed to his father in large part because of racism um, and lived homeless like for a lot of his younger life. So having interracial parents, I've really seen that there's a lot of nuance there that often isn't captured. And so I'm really disgusted by the way I'm seeing so-called racial justice play out in America that in my mind, racism is a result of hatred the real issue is hatred so if you make racism be some kind of superficial thing that's based around what you said and the other person said like you know when i was younger the idea was introduced into my mind that black people can't be racist complete and total nonsense when you have that kind of stuff come out then you can actually strike to the heart of hatred and get rid of hatred so i think what's happening in america needs to be focused around how do we stop hatred and if we have an unrealistic view of race in America what I'm seeing happening is more hatred actually being created and the issue isn't being solved so you feel like things have been so let's just start I guess uh, two years ago with the George with the, the death of George Floyd and then you know the protests and I guess, you know, the quote-unquote awareness uh, around racial issues in, in the world, um, and especially here in the U.S. Um, are you saying that you feel like, you know, despite all of what, you know, all the advocacy, all of the stuff that's going on online and, and the marches and everything, are you saying that you feel like things might have been going in the wrong direction? Unfortunately. Okay. I think so. Because I've... Um I guess to give some backstory and then to go into the George Floyd thing, um, growing, going to high school, there was a long time where I just thought, you know, so many of these people I'm going to school with are racist because I was reading, you know, I read, uh, Malcolm X and I read all these other things. 
Um, and so it was very easy for me to say whenever I have an issue with someone that's based around racism. But when I went and lived up in Maine, I saw that's not true because these people hate racism so much. There's so This is like the most extreme the politically correct situation um, to the point that I actually saw a lot of racism directed towards white people. And there is even more hatred. hatred. There is still the same interpersonal issues. Um, so let's take it. Let's take a step back. Just uh, if you're comfortable talking about it, can you talk about some like you know experiences growing up? Anything that um, kind of shaped your um, you know your thoughts of of kind of living around here and the people around here, and then talking about experiences also when you moved to Maine and somewhere that's um, you know not so rural, not in the middle of the country, um, that kind of stuff. Just kind of giving a little bit more uh, experiences. I know you said you had, had been reading um, like Malcolm X and, and things like that. What kind of stuff were you um, exposed to in your um, you know like your physical everyday life? You know, going to school, that kind of stuff. Yeah, so I was reading a lot of things that were really just pointing out the very worst examples of white people abusing black people. And so um, there would be a lot of stuff that there. I actually did experience some racism um, in high school. But most of what was there was just people messing around, just joking around. Um, like I, a lot of the things for me, so for instance, you know, people would people would make jokes or things that were focused around race um and so to me that was okay these people are racist but when i stepped out and i looked at it these people it, it was high school everyone was making jokes towards everyone about everything most of the jokes that were being made were not offensive towards me like we were we were having fun we were just joking around and a lot of it to me is I would hear stuff and I would laugh because I was uncomfortable and sometimes I actually thought it was funny. Sometimes I was just laughing because I was uncomfortable and so they'd think, oh, well, that's funny and I would think, oh, well, these people are being racist but that was just the issue of miscommunication. Um, so would you still classify it as, I know you said like, uh, you know, racism is really like a harm type thing, like obviously like a, a hatred, a harmful thing. Um, but you know these these kids going to high school are still making these jokes and, and poking fun. I mean, there's some harm intended, most likely. But also, you're thinking that you know it's mostly jokingly, and and everyone does poke fun. You know, like we make fun of each other a lot in high school. Um, do you still feel like there is like a category like these people are racist in a sense that um, you know maybe just they're not they don't want to actually harm me hurt me they don't want to exclude me but like they still are racist in these tendencies or or would you classify it as something different altogether i would say there's a few examples of real racism and i would say that in order for it to be that someone has to hate someone and you never felt hatred from these people i'm sorry i'm not trying to put words no. in your mouth i'm just saying like what I'm kind of hearing is like, it feels what you're saying is that you never actually felt hatred from these individuals in high school or, or whatever. You just, maybe they crossed the line with jokes or something like that. I would say there was maybe three people in high school that I had reason to believe were actually racist. And, the, and here's the biggest thing that I would uh, um, put out here is that I was one of the least, I felt like in retrospect, one of the least mistreated people in that school there were so many kids i was focusing on myself but how many kids 
you know, were bullied or treated bad every single day just because, you know, their parents were poor, because they were overweight, because they look weird, because they dress weird. Mm -hmm. They were getting bullied. They were being made fun of way, way, way more than me. So to me, it's just unfair to say, oh, well, because this is a bigger issue in America, which has been predominantly a lot. I could never deny that. Black people have been mistreated so much in America. But I think you need to actually look at the specific example in my life and see these people were being, other people were being abused, treated bad. That's the issue. That's the, so in, in my mind, I was not treated worse because I was black. I was treated bad sometimes because I was black, but people were treated bad for every single reason. And actually a lot of the time that there was issues um, it was coming from me being a Democrat, coming from me not believing in God at that time, coming from me being a vegetarian. So, yeah, I don't feel like I was I was specifically made fun of more than anyone or mistreated more than anyone because of my race. Okay. But at the time, um, you know, maybe your feelings were a little different because you would, you know, you said you'd been reading things um, and just kind of what you'd been consuming, what you'd been told. Um, you felt like this maybe wasn't such a welcoming place, perhaps. Juniata County, you know, predominantly white population, country, hick, you know, redneck, that kind of stuff. Um, felt like it's not really maybe the place that you should be. So did you go to Maine because you wanted to get away? What, you know, what kind of, what drove you to go to Maine and, and seek out, you know, a different lifestyle, essentially? Yeah, so I wanted, it was just random that I went to Maine. I originally wanted to go to Portland, Oregon, but basically I just wanted to get out. Yeah. Um, so you go to Portland, Maine instead? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny because I applied to school in Portland, Oregon, but a friend who really wanted me to stay closer was like, hey, you should apply to Portland, Maine too. It's pretty similar. And Portland, Oregon cost tons of money, and Portland, Maine was like free. Actually, they ended up paying me. So I was like, oh, okay, wow. we're That's awesome, there. Man. <laughs> Yeah. Um, um, so yeah, I, I guess the way I would sum it up is that I was seeing verbal things and interpreting that as being racism. But then when I went to Maine, uh, and the people in Maine are, are lovely. I love the people in Maine. Um, and there was very few instances of, actually, I never experienced anything like racism in Maine. But I would say I experienced the same level of hatred. And that's what kind of allowed me to see clearly is that people were just expressing hatred in a different way because they had been taught that expressing hatred through racism was not good. Um, so, you know, I think racism had its own specific harms. Can you expand on that a little bit? Like, what, what, what forms did you see hatred taking up there that, you know, you said it didn't really take the form of racism, but um, what, how did you see hatred coming out? up there one of the best examples is i joined the student senate up there and one of the things that was the catastrophe that kind of led me into it is that there had been these things that were kind of dubbed like anti-muslim like hate crimes and things like that so most of the senate was white um and i just remembered a whole bunch of people of color, a lot of Muslim people, people of all different backgrounds, but basically people coming in and I remember specifically, actually, specifically it was a white woman too, um, that, you know, here I am, I'm trying to just help out and like these people were just being so nasty to me 
because I was, you know, uh, I was called a, a, a Uncle Tom and all, whatever, the whole long list that I was basically just being treated like crap, even though I had done nothing wrong. Like I was trying to help people and I was actually treated better than most of these other people. I was the only person who was able to even speak mm. because I was the only black person. They wouldn't let the, the white people talk. Hmm. So to me, that was the hatred in there that, you know, these, these are people just trying to live their lives and you're just treating them with so much disdain. You can't even treat them like human beings. You know, you can't let them speak. That to me is a really deep seated racism. Um, I'm sorry, a deep seated hatred that can be just as bad as racism. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So Fast forward a little bit now to like 2020 um, and the national events, the international events that circle racism. What are your thoughts while this is happening? Um, you know, what what are your thoughts of what can someone what can someone do to to um, you know stomp out this hatred, this racism in, in the country? And it sounds like from what kind of what we had been talking about a little bit before that it sounds almost like the way that it was handled was not maybe the proper way to actually stomp out the hatred and racism. Yeah, I would say that's exactly it. I would say that when we're framing things in a really inaccurate way, um, and to me that would look like uh, the white people are the oppressors and the people of color are the oppressed and in order for a white person to redeem themselves, they have to come and be an ally. And what an ally is, is someone that agrees with every single thing that that person says. Um, to me, that just misses the entire point. Um, and I think it's also extraordinarily degrading towards people of color. Because if you paint a certain demographic as being the victim all the time, then it is weakening that people and it's actually like i know from my perspective it was coming into my head an excuse for me to fail time and time and time again it was an excuse for me to tell myself i couldn't succeed in this because i was black that's false and i think we need to realize that there are stumbling blocks but you don't let those stumbling blocks get in your way and there was a lot of white people that had more stumbling blocks than me and so to me when we're putting things in that way i don't want to call it reverse racism it's just it's it's adding racism and it's adding hatred in my mind because you're ascribing certain things to a race and that's just wrong and so incidentally that's kind of what you you're thinking like incidentally that's going to cause people of color black people to feel like that they have this excuse to, to now not you know not not necessarily an excuse but they have this what they've been being told like that you're not going to succeed because of your color of skin but what you would rather see is building these people up and saying you can do this it Precisely. has nothing to do with the color of skin because you can do this you're you know you're a great person you can you know you you are smart you're educated whatever like you can become what you want and not just a, another reason to hate someone to you know use as a, an excuse that you know i wouldn't have been able to do this because i'm black or because i'm a person of color exactly now of course there are like the institutional um you know things that are built in that make it easier for someone from a socioeconomic class uh you know skin color uh gender whatever you know any of these things that you know 
historically has been harder for certain people, obviously, right? Yeah. People that have experienced discrimination, experienced, uh, you know, hatred, racism, sexism. Um, but you think that, and I think also that I think the, the way to that solution is to build these people up, you know, not to try and tear someone else down outside of that group. It's to build everyone else up and, and try and get everyone onto a level playing field by going up, not by bringing someone else down. Precisely. And what you're saying is the same thing that people like George Washington Carver and W.E.D. Bois, people who are actually slaves, that's what they were saying. And to me, one of the big issues here is when you're you're saying, you know, white people are the oppressor, black people are oppressed. Um, what do you think the kid in West Virginia that can't get a meal, the white kid has to say about that? Mm-hmm. They can immediately, and there's millions of people like this. I know, I went to school with them. These people are not privileged. These people have been oppressed, treated like dirt their whole lives. Yeah. So you do two things. First of all, you, you, you turn them against black people when they are not interacting with black people and they're seeing this narrative that, oh, I'm the oppressor? Yeah, okay. And then you see you know, all these rich black people who have plenty of things. LeBron James is not... I won't get into the things that I would say, but LeBron James is not an oppressed person in comparison to a kid that doesn't have food to eat, a white mm-hmm. kid that doesn't have, It's just a joke. And that also, it not only spreads them apart, but it also stops, and this has been happening all throughout American history, it stops those people from realizing that we are together in this. We're both being oppressed by people who have more power than us. There is no group of people that has better reason to come together more than black people who live in urban areas and white people that live in country areas. Those people need to come together so bad and there's being a wedge driven between them and it's being driven by people that don't actually have a deep, in my mind, don't really have a deep connection with the struggle and are just, you know, coming up with issues. They're they're provocators. That's just what they do. Mm. Um, and they're, they're getting a lot of steam because they're the people who you're hearing but I don't think they represent the majority of people. Mm-hmm. Okay. So where do we go from here? You know, what can what can anyone do? First of all, what can you know people of color? Um, what can they do to build themselves up? What can they do to make things a little more fair? What can people like myself do, like a white man? What can I do to make it? You know more equal more you know um, more fair in this country like what kind of stuff should we be doing um you know all around the country um regardless of who you are like what what how do we get to this this common goal of just you know everyone on the same you know high ups like people aren't going hungry people aren't being denied jobs in school because of their skin color because of their gender people aren't you know any any of these things like how do we how do we fix these problems that have been rooted in this country that have been here for a while? Like, what do we do about it, and how do how do we like how do we move forward? Um, I wanted to say a couple things. Firstly, I think an important ideology shift that's necessary to get to a better place is not looking at things from how can we change other people to make them do the right things, but rather realizing the most important thing we can do is change ourselves. Um, and that's how you create a better example. That's how you create a better world. So the story that I think best embodies what I think needs to be done is 
Um, there's a fellow that lives right down the road, known him for a really long time. Now I went to school, I hadn't talked to him for a long time. I came back with all of the ideas, very progressive ideas I had about race and etc. Well, a little while in the car with this guy, you know, he calls a pile of snow the N-word and just all, it's, um, and pretty quickly I was like, you know, this guy sucks, this guy's a racist, you know, based on verbal things, you know, he's, um, but I kept having this, this interaction with, well, actually I didn't talk to him for a really long time. I had pretty much shunned him. Um, and then I had hypothermia and I was like, almost died and he discovered that it had happened and he was so sad you know but you know that almost broke my heart that you didn't tell me you know you were out here and i could have i wanted to help you and he just was just the sweetest man ever he offered to do everything for me so i started building a better connection with this guy and you know now he's one of my closest friends and you know he says stuff that every single person that i talked to from up in maine and all those people they would have said oh this guy is such a racist but the backstory that i discovered this guy was one of my dad's best friends. He's probably my dad's best friend. And when we first moved into this neighborhood, um, we lived up there at the trailer. And, um, you know, there was, back in the 80s, you know, he said there was some clan activity and there was a lot of stuff that, you know, we were not necessarily safe. My mother was not necessarily safe. Um, and his grandfather was in the clan. Um, this neighbor, this neighbor, his okay. grandfather was in the clan, um, but they saw my mother there, and you know she was like six months pregnant. The clan did, or, or um, who saw your mother? He he did, and probably people from the clan and okay. all kinds of other people, because this is, I mean, this road leads up the gap. Yeah. Um, and you know he was aware that they were in danger or whatever, but. He saw he saw them out there. He didn't say anything to me. He saw, you know, this woman is working hard. And, you know, he decided, I like these people. And that's what his opinion had always been. I don't care what color someone is. I, I judge people on what they do. So he said, I like these people. And so, you know, the word got around from what him and his pap said, you know, you leave these people be. Um, and so we were protected we were looked out for in this community as soon as we came in and people loved us because of the character that we showed. And what he went on to describe to me, it's not saying, oh, black people have to work hard for us to like it. No, what, from his perspective, I, he says it's an ignorant person who hates someone without knowing them. You understand who someone is. You meet them, you know who they are, and you judge them on what they've done. But isn't that kind of the antithesis of what the Klan is? I mean, they hate people just based on you know, the color of their skin without knowing anything about them. I know, like, with this specific story, you're saying that you your family was protected because he had had a personal connection and seen you guys. But isn't that kind of like, you know, what the, what the clan, it, 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 the whole thing it's built on is just hating people because of the color of their skin. Precisely. And that's why he thought the, he thought the clan were idiots. Okay, okay. And I think the clan are idiots. So this guy's not part of the clan. No. It's his grandfather and... His grandfather was, and in, at that time, the role, like, I'm not defending the clan in any no, degree. No, no, the clan is evil. <laughs> but um, even his grandfather, the role he was playing was very different than the clan in the South. Their okay. role at that time was, like, they, there wasn't really any black people around here anyways. Yeah, but still, it kind of takes a it wasn't okay. kind of, like, yeah, idiot to want to join something that's got the same name. You know, whether yeah. it's not the same as it is in the South, like, it's still 
I don't know. Like, you got to think a little twice about somebody that joins something like that up here. Yeah. But, yeah, okay. But but that's beside the point because that's his grandfather. That's not this guy himself. But, okay. And to me, the main moral of the story here was, firstly, that, you know, it was really where he w- he was and what he'd grown up in that from his everyone is approaching things from their own vantage point from his vantage point like that's what he was exposed to and he was not a bad person he was always a good person that always loved people and cared about people based on what they did so from his perspective if someone were to say you know oh you're a racist because of what you say or because you use these certain words then it would just like he would say right from the bat well that's nonsense because i'm not and so i don't want to listen to you because you're just full of it and i think that would probably be you know that probably would have been the same thing you know that was thought by his ancestors before that and i don't understand that perspective fully but to me the main thing is just that you know i'm i'm not saying that you know what this guy does is perfect um i i'm, I'm not saying he should use the words he uses all i'm saying is is that um i was i wrote that guy off um and when i when i stopped judging and had a closer connection with him and you know judged him by by his actual good qualities then now we're really close friends and we have i think learned a lot from each other um we've learned a lot about how to bridge that gap and i'd say this is the kind of this is the kind of thing um, that needs to be happening is people coming together and people coming together with people who have a difference of opinions so they can see things from that view mm-hmm. and you know yeah and that goes back to what we've been talking about before like just having a difference of opinion is not a bad thing at all it, I mean now like there are certain opinions that are terrible obviously but just having some you know discourse as far as how you see things it's not a bad thing. It's how you get more education. I'm not talking like college and stuff, but I'm just saying like more knowledge of, of how things work. You know, you have two differing opinions. You talk about it. You learn the other side. You you talk about why your side is. If you can't defend your own point, you kind of start to realize, oh, maybe that's not, maybe I shouldn't think that way. Precisely. Then there, you know, they're also differing opinions, having some other, having some other ideas come in, having, seeing somebody else and, and what they've gone through and all sorts of ways like that opens up new ideas for yourself and things like that so I think just you know the fact that this guy and you obviously different opinions different backgrounds different everything I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing you know there's many questionable things he does obviously but there's probably questionable things we all do right so just the fact that um, you know you guys have these differences but now you came together and you've been talking, you guys are like actually friends now and you kind of are able to, you know, talk about things and, and, and feel, you know, feel things about each other and, and just learn. I think that is kind of what we need um, rather than, you know, I know I asked what can I do, what can, what can everyone do? I think, you know, rather than just being told what to do and, and, and where to go and, and, and what like, you know, virtue signaling essentially, mm-hmm. like getting online and posting and all that kind of stuff, like, yes, that may help. I don't know, maybe, but I think, you know, what you had talked about before is just kind of like, what can you do in your own heart and in your own, like being as a person, like what can you do to make things better? Um, you know, what kind of, what kind of conversations can you have? Um, what kind of, you know, actions can you show that is going to further, 
you know, better people's, um, you know, their, um, you know, their circumstances and, and where they are. Um, and I think it's very important to learn from one another, like, you know, both ways, you know, why, why are you saying those things? You know, why would you say those kind of words? And then the other way around, maybe he, what, what, why is it offensive to you? You know, back yeah. and forth. And then he can learn why, you know, why you feel one way and why, why he feels one way and, you know, come to a, a mutual understanding. I think, that's kind of what we need more of, essentially, um, and not so much. I mean, I, I just don't know how effective it is, I guess, just seeing things on the news um, about, you know, here's what's going on, here's what you need to do, here's what's going on, here's what you need. Like, it needs to come from within, I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I think it really just comes down to us focusing on ourselves and realizing the best we can do for other people is improving ourselves mm -hmm. and being a good example. And, you know, exactly what you're saying, learning from those interactions is so important. If we just spend all of our time around people that we agree with, which I've spent a lot of my life doing that, it, in, my, in my mind, it rots our brain um, because it causes us to just stay in this one place. Mm -hmm. um, but if our dialogue is with people that have a very strong difference of opinion, um, then it tests everything that we're doing. And that's how our thinking becomes stronger. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's, to me, that's really the solution is just Americans and people all around the world focusing on bettering themselves. And that might seem small, right? I'm, I, it's just me doing that. But I would say, you know, this tying into the, ne to the next topic of conversation, look at Jesus Christ, one human being that really, you know, was not very popular in, at, at that time among a lot of the people he was around. They really didn't like him. But just that one example, look how much that's changed the world. So if we, if, you know, there could be a million, I really believe, if you could have a million people around the world be perfect examples, all the problems would be solved. Because everyone would see, wow, it's actually helpful for me and for everyone else around me to behave this way. And I can see that, I can know that because it's happening for you. But where are we gonna get a million people like that? <laughs> <laughs> Wherever we can find them. Yeah, we gotta start looking. <laughs> Which um, I didn't wanna move, I didn't wanna change topics yet. No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think we still got a, a good bit to talk about here. Um, so, okay, so now, so you had, you'd left originally after high school, gone away and came back. How are your views now different around here um, you know, and what what kind of stuff do you still see that's kind of maybe an issue around here, and what and what what can be done about that essentially? I have maybe not been out as much as I was in the past, but I have not seen any racism in Juniata County since I came back, and I realize a lot of it was based on my view of it, and also like the way I would have treated someone. So like. I said that a lot of time I would just laugh if someone would make a racist joke or whatever, but I also argued with people a lot and disagreed with them a lot and just, you know, also honestly treated them bad because of things that they said. Um, and I realized that that was a lot of point of conflict. Uh, like I've had, I had breakfast with a friend of mine that has said some things that I would identify as extraordinarily racist. Um, but he always treated me well and when we saw each other you know he was he apologized you know man like i was so stupid for saying that kind of stuff and we just had a great time and we connected like human to human um so coming back i'm really seeing the people around here for those good qualities that they have not just the things they're saying but just 
you know, I've started, I can look at someone's face and see just the simple things that they're doing and see goodness in that. And I've been focusing on that. And now I feel like I'm seeing the place that I grew up in a totally new light. And I really, really like it. So can we get back back up a little bit? So you, you have this friend that, you know, in the past said some very, you know, derogatory, questionable things, right? Um, and now he comes back and says, you know, I'm sorry. And, and I, you know, I, I'm sorry, you know. With today's world, with, you know, cancel culture, things like that, you see all the time somebody, you know, I'm not necessarily around race, but oftentimes around race, sexism, that kind of stuff, they'll say something, whether jokingly or not, and then they are done forever, essentially. Yeah. What is it different about you that you are able to just accept that, you know, accept that person's apology, forgive them and let them back into your life? Like, that's very unheard of these days, you know? <laughs> that if someone, you know, you would say, hey, you said this 10 years ago, you are, you're done, you know? What, what kind of like, what's different about you and what, how do we get it to the point that people are allowed to, allowed to change and grow and become better people, you know? A lot of people, celebrities, politicians, you know, even just everyday people have made mistakes, right? How do we get to the point where we can become like a forgiving, forgiving people? I know this kind of ties into Christianity as well with, you know, kind of love that neighbor and forgiveness and, and everything along those lines. But I feel like we kind of need to get to that point where we can say, yes, you have grown as a person and you are, you're not the same person that you were whenever you'd made these remarks, whenever you had done these things. Like, how do we get to that point that we can get everyone kind of back on the same page? I think it really comes down to us looking at ourselves and seeing how much messed up stuff we do. You know, I'm not saying I did anything evil, but just, you know, not treating people good, um, being egotistical, um, just having opinions that were wrong. I think what allowed me to do that is really just looking into all those things and realizing, you know, everyone should have the chance to be forgiven if it's genuine. That, you know, there's just, I feel like, from where I was before, it was, you know, when you're always looking at other people's problems, it was easy for me to say, you know, oh, well, all these people have so many problems and to see those problems being manifested in other people. And then you get frustrated because you're saying, all oh, these people are still doing all these stupid things. But when you turn around and you look at yourself, then you see, wow, I did a lot of things wrong. You stop focusing on other people's problems as much. And it, to me, it just seems a lot easier to say, well, like, okay, I understand. Mm -hmm. like. But I would also say that um, the main thing there was that this guy was clearly coming from a genuine place and a place of kindness. And even before, he was still a good guy. He just expressed himself in the wrong way, I think. Um, so I think forgiveness should be something that's actually earned mm -hmm. yeah it's got to be genuine it's got to be you you know it's got to be you're actually trying and, and things like that so um okay so i think that kind of goes along the lines too like what you have been talking about um you know with with you know he he didn't really he wasn't coming from a bad place essentially in the you know when he was you know the first times you guys have been interacting it's just kind of 
maybe more or less he was raised in a certain you know way like that and, and I think that kind of ties into religion as well I don't know if we want to switch gears at all but um, it just kind of popped into my head is kind of along the same lines is whenever someone's growing up say you're growing up in the deep south and you're these you know negative uh, values are being instilled into you or say you're growing up in um, you know in say China where you can't practice you know maybe Christianity in, in some certain parts or whatever um, how can how can how can someone like actually write them off as a bad person or whatever if that's the only experiences they've had so like I know that in Christianity some forms anyways it's, it's pretty common in a lot of religions that if you don't follow this religion, you're not going to get into the afterlife. You're not going to get into heaven. You're not going to get into whatever because you didn't accept Jesus, whatever. So how's that fair to anyone that's never even heard the name Jesus? You know, maybe they just never been grown. They've never grown up. They never heard it the whole time that, you know, they've been alive. They've never heard anything about Christianity. Same thing with like someone that's, um, you know, one way or the other, whether they've only grown up in uh, an all-white neighborhood, never experienced any anyone of a different um, race, ethnicity, anything, or you know, an all-black neighborhood, never experienced anything the other way around. Like, is is it really fair to hold these people to the same standard as someone that is, you know, growing up in like a very diverse city and has all these experiences and knows all that? Is it is it fair to compare these people like just the same way as it is it is it fair to have this non-Christian that didn't accept Jesus over in, in China because they never heard of it like is it fair to write all these people off like what you know that's kind of where I, it just popped in my head I'm just like kind of thinking like I don't know what's the what's the fair way of going about these things and how do we kind of educate people in the right way so that they can you know uh, make their own decisions one way or another and not all just based on how they were raised and where they grew up and things like that. That's a great question, um, and maybe a good segue, I guess we'll see, <laughs> but um, I, I would say it isn't, and I don't think it's true to the best nature of both of those things. Um, the gospel says, Jesus said in the gospel, not all those that say unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father in heaven. And I think a lot of the time, as a similar in a similar thing, it really comes down to virtue signaling that people have turned Christianity into something in which you say, I love Jesus, I believe in Jesus, yet you're saved, even mm -hmm. if you're doing terrible things and going against everything that's being said there. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, look at all of the people. I mean, well, first of all, Jesus wasn't called Jesus. A lot of the time he was called Ishu. It was his Aramaic name. Jesus didn't even exist then. So it's not about the specific name. And even look at all the righteous people that were in the Bible. They didn't even know about Jesus. They hadn't gotten his gospel. Mm -hmm. So ultimately it's what some it's in it's what's in someone's heart, the goodness in someone's heart. And I think the same thing applies to racism. Um, you know, it's not about the language you use. It's the way you treat people and the way you behave towards someone. That even like, you know, my dad and you know this example could be used to go against what i'm saying too but like my dad grew up in a racist environment and actually maybe i should i would like to know more about it from what i heard my grandfather actually didn't use the n-word or anything he just didn't like black people um but whatever the case which might be worse right <laughs> which yeah, might be like, worse yeah. exactly yeah. <laughs> yeah because then you didn't know yeah and he would look like you know oh such a nice guy um, but my dad grew up in that environment and like there was just something in him that he wasn't going to follow along with that. Um, so to me, that's the most important thing, what those decisions are that you're going to make. Mm -hmm.
so getting that exposure is, is obviously very important. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and, uh, I guess, yeah, if we go on to like the religious segue a little bit, um, as far as just, you know, people doing God's will, God's work, what, however you want to call it, um, that could really be anyone, right? Like anyone that's just a decent person, a kind person, you know, whether you follow, um, Christianity or whether you're Muslim, whether you're Jewish, whether, you know, you're Hindu, Buddhist, you know, whatever. Um, as long as you're just like a decent person, what you're saying is you're going to be fine. I would, uh, well, I should put uh, a log in the fire here yeah, quickly, but... So, I would say that the most important idea is that, so the first time that Jesus came, there was all these people who were just really on the Messiah's team, but a lot of those people were actually the Pharisees that crucified him. Mm. Um, so I think it was shown there that what really, what it really comes down to is, okay, when this person comes, how are you going to treat them? I say the same thing applies to the second coming. You know, when Christ comes again, all of these people, in my mind, are going to have the choice. How are you going to choose to behave towards this person? You know, if you're... So that's not to say that, um, you know, I think if... So, so say someone's a Muslim, right? Um, from my mind, if you're... I could say some things that are going to offend some people, but whatever, I'll just say it. Um, in my mind, if you s continue to believe every single thing that's there, like for instance, because I've read parts of the Quran, that there's certain instances where it's okay to beat your wife. Mm -hmm. If you continue to believe that, all of those different things, you know, that it's okay to kill someone because they have a difference of opinions, whatever, all these different things, then I don't think that that's cutting it. Now, you could kind of argue that some of those same things pop up in the Bible, too, where there's mistreatment and things like that, um, right? Like, especially in the Old Testament, um, where there's just a lot of people that are getting, um, you know, killed, uh, you know, like Cain and Abel, like, aren't, uh, you know, is it... You know, there, there's there's killings there. There's who's the guy that killed his son and, and all that stuff. Like, there's all these things, right, in the Bible too that are like, is that? It's kind of questionable whether that's like the right way of going about things too, right? Well, from I, I've heard that a lot, but looking into the specific cases, I think a lot of the time, like Cain was the bad guy, and that was clear. He was bad, the bad guy because he killed his brother. So there was there was examples of that, but it was not what was being supported. Like it was showing like. For instance, uh, I believe it was Judah that, you know, went with a prostitute. And it just talked about it, you know, but it was obvious from the reader's view, okay, this isn't right. So to me, that's not saying that what some, everything that someone did in the Bible is not right. The examples are there for lessons for us to learn. Mm -hmm. But the people who are said to have, to be good people, from my experience in reading the Bibles, are people that did things that were good. Okay. Um, 
and for me, what was it? Well, just because I'm blanking, what yeah. was the story of the the guy that had to kill his his son? Oh, Abraham. Yeah. What was what was the deal there? So this is a really interesting thing for me because it's discussed in a lot of ways. So it was Sid. So Abraham had a relationship with God, and so basically it was Sid that God had told him, you know, take your son here. Um, sacrifice your son so he took his son um, and he was about to sacrifice his son and then the angel of the Lord came and said well don't do this okay so um, from my perspective of having a relationship with God it's very much based on the human being and how they're interpreting that you know I don't personally think that God communicates with human words Mm -hmm. i think that god communicates with spirit and then the human words and thoughts try to wrap around that and to understand it Mm -hmm. so from my mind um that story was an example of abraham trying to understand god um i don't think god ever intended for abraham to kill his son um, a lot of people have said, and this may have been the case, I don't know what was in Abraham's mind, that it was probably Satan trying to tempt Abraham, telling Abraham to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and he went to do it, and then God came in and helped him. A lot of that would come down to the perspective of it being told. And to me, that's the big thing, that I'm not condemning Islam, but I'm just saying that there's a, a massive difference is that Islam was not this compilation of stories. Islam was one man, Muhammad, who came and was giving these doctrines that you have to do this, that, and the other thing. Um, And specifically, some people may say that this is not the case. Um, I've heard historical historical reports that he married a nine-year-old and consummated the marriage before she hit puberty. Hmm. So, um, I don't know. questionable things like questionable yeah, things so. and and questionable things coming i don't mean to absolve christians at all because christians have done awful terrible things yeah, hypocritical that's kind of what things. i was trying to drive at is maybe not necessarily what's written in the bible i haven't read it obviously the whole way through or anything myself just from going to church when i grew up but um you know i don't know what's all in it i don't know what's in the quran but i just i can see that there's people on both sides you know muslim or christian that you know they maybe don't practice what they preach essentially um maybe there's some questionable things out there um that people are doing in the name of christianity in the name of islam um you know in the name of judaism whatever you know just add your add your label to it although i feel like maybe this is just like my naive viewpoint i feel like people that are like buddhists don't really like <laughs> get in violent stuff and what maybe i don't know anyways there's just like some of the a lot of the like leading world religions do a lot of questionable things in the name of their religion. Yeah. Oftentimes, not necessarily um, good things, right? Um, pretty evil things sometimes. So, I guess like m- my point is like, is there, um, you know, is there a one religion that you that everyone should follow? That like, you know, you need to follow this. You know, the second coming of Christ essentially. Like, does everyone need to convert um, to one religion, or is it all like kind of based on what's in inside your heart, like? Maybe you're maybe you're Jewish and you have the you know the kindest heart in the world. Is that gonna you know really screw you up as far as getting into the afterlife or whatever you know is the next step or you know I guess my point is like is there is it is it so cut and dry that you need to be part of this religion? You need to be part of the club to get in. I would say absolutely not. Um, it's really about what's inside of us. 
Um, there's, I've known a lot of Muslim people who are excellent people that are, that are not going to do, they're, they're not going to beat their wife for any reason from mm. my perspective. Um, they know what's right, what's inside of them. And what I have ascertained from reading scriptures from a lot of different religions, pretty, I guess all the major world religions is that the Quran says that the Messiah is going to come at the end of the age and Get, destroy Satan in the world. The Bible says the same thing. Mm -hmm. The um, there's a lot of different Hinduism is kind of just a a lot. Some people who would be called Hindus don't like the term Hindu um, because Hindu is just a word for people beyond the Indus River. But basically, the a lot of what that religion's viewpoints are based on is Vedic scriptures. And basically, the conclusion from the Vedic scriptures is someone named Kalki is going to come at the close of the age that's supposed to be a manifestation of God and destroy evil. Well, you know, Kalki is coming and riding a horse and white horse and fits all the other descriptions that Christ would fit um, in, in the Quran and in the Bible. Mm -hmm. So all of the major world religions from what I've read, and, you know, Buddhists as well, they also believe Kalki or a different name for Kalki. So whatever the case, all of these have the same conclusion. Um, and so to me, the most important thing is that, you know, when this person comes, that we're in the position not to fit this checkbox or that checkbox, but to actually be capable of living in a world that's like heaven. Because what's going to happen if you have people that, you know, have all these issues within themselves that are causing themselves and the other people around them to suffer? It, it, it harms all of us. Humanity is connected. Mm -hmm. So to me, the most important thing is how well can you live with your fellow human beings? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. So how did you get, you know, what drove you to Christianity of, you know, of, uh, it sounds like you've dove pretty deep into some of these other religions. Um, did you grow up um, Hindu or, okay. So you grew up there, um, you practiced some Buddhism, right? Um, and now you, you know, you kind of found Christianity. So what kind of steered you in that direction and what kind of takeaways have you gotten from you know what you've learned in the past from other religions so i started with um just grew up at the ishkan temples that's some people call them hindu some they sometimes perf they don't like being called that sometimes they prefer being called vaishnavas whatever the case that's how you would think of them um so my is Ish ishkan a, is that an acronym mm -hmm. international society of krishna consciousness okay so um, in Hinduism, there's considered the Trimurti, and Krishna is one of the manifestations of God. And so they consider Krishna to be the manifestation of God. So is Hare Krishna similar to like Jesus Christ, essentially? That That's the idea. Yeah, the manifest. Yeah, the per okay. in the scriptures is called the divine personality of Godhead. Okay. Um, so I grew up with that, and you know, I would like since I was a tiny little kid because my parents were involved with it. Um, and I saw, I, I felt the spirit of God there. You know, I just felt, I didn't even know what it was at that time, but just, you know, just joy, connectivity, just things being right. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt that there. Um, and then when I started to, to, I, there was a certain time when I started, you know, having an interaction with God, things happening that I couldn't explain. Um, and I actually started entering in it from the Hindu viewpoint, you know, you know, chanting and doing all that kind of different stuff that they would do there. Um, and then I uh, kind of wanted to, 
I had had a lot of issues with a lot of Christians in high school because, you know, honestly, in my mind, there was a lot of hypocrisy where oh, people yeah. were doing things that weren't very good and they were saying, be a Christian. So I was like, well, I don't want to be a Christian because I don't want to like these people. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so I kind of wanted to disprove it. So I started reading the Bible and I was like, oh, wait, this is actually really good. I like mm-hmm. this. Um, so I read the Bible along with the Bhagavad Gita and all these other scriptures. Um, I spent some time, I was only actually spent a week at the Buddhist monastery. Um, but uh, where's that at? It's up in Vermont. Oh, okay. It's called Maple. Nice. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, a, it was fun. And you um, said there was also a period where you were agnostic, right? Yeah. So I was agnostic up until I was about 19. Okay. So I had, um, and my ancestors are also Native American. So that was even another element. Oh, okay. There. That's cool. Um, Which side is that on? On my mom's side. Oh, nice. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, what would so before you know before uh, colonials came over and whatnot like what would you classify like the Native American religions as is there like a name for that um, I know that there had been different ones in, in different tribes and you know all across the US and like the Incas the Mayans all that kind of stuff but is there like a blanket term for for their uh, spirituality their religiousness or I don't feel that there is I feel like the most effective thing to say is that when the Christ, when Christian people came here a lot of the native people when they heard what they were teaching like oh yeah we believe in that too okay like see that's interesting to me because in the great it seems like, like you had said like you know that all of these things almost tie back into the same thing so like Hinduism, you know, Islam, they all Christianity all tie into, you know, there's this one creator essentially or not even necessarily creator, but just this one being that, um, you know, has control. And then there, you know, there will be a manifestation of that into, you know, humanity essentially someday. Um, it's kind of interesting. Do you, th- it, I know you're more, much more history buff than I am based on your YouTube videos and whatnot. Um, do you think they all kind of stem from, you know, so you, so you can trace, human um, history like the development of our species um, based on mitochondrial DNA which is just like you know a form of DNA that's in our cells that only gets passed down through the women through you know the um, through the mothers you can trace that back the whole way to like essentially one woman out of Africa like however long ago like maybe millions of years I I don't remember the figure but you can trace that all back to essentially one person, right? So that one person, probably, you know, there were more people obviously at the time, but like if you can trace it all back to that one person, that means there was kind of almost like a a point where all of humanity was essentially together, right? Yeah. We all spread out, people went to Asia, people went to Europe, then people came maybe across the Bering uh, land bridge, whatever. Do you think there was a religion back at that time that was just the thing and then as everyone spread out, you know, different languages develop, different religions kind of take their own twists and turns. I don't know, this is just a, this is just a theory I'm thinking out loud. I, I, I don't know if there's any sort of historical context behind it, but it almost feels like there's everything's almost too similar, essentially. Like, the, like how can it be that there's this one thing that is going to, at the end of the world's time, is going to take a manifestation into, like, into humanity? Like... It almost feels like it all came from the same thing, just got a little bit distorted as people moved around, just like 
how Latin got distorted into Spanish, into English, into, you know, it got into all these different languages from one thing, right? So it almost feels like maybe that's what happened with religion. Um, and, you know, how many thousands of years ago that that happened. And now, you know, we have all these different religions that are really tying back down into the same thing. I think that touches on a really good point and what I would try to do to kind of put that into my context, my thinking, is um, to say that I think religion is the actualization of humans' relation, internal relationship with God. Um, and so I think when people don't actually have an internal relationship with God, then religion turns into something else. But in my mind, that's true religion. And then in my mind, there's also false religion. So um, I would say that when the first humans existed, they had a relationship with God and you could call their way of actualizing that a religion. Um, I don't think it looked at all like a lot of religions do now because I feel like a lot of the religions have been... uh, changed and altered you know even like christianity christianity isn't one thing christianity is a thousand different beliefs and interpretations of a scripture yeah um so i would say that really what it comes down to is the reason there's so much similarity is because god is actually interacting with people god actually has a relationship with people um even if someone doesn't think of that relationship that way and that's what all the scripture is going to say you know Mm -hmm. is that you have that relationship with god and so to me that's the primary thing have a relationship with god and then the religion is going to be the manifestation of that and it's going to be true if it's coming from a real interaction and if it's just something people are fabricating so that they can look good or so they can get approval or whatever then it's going to look bad and it's going to be inconsistent yeah and it's not going to last thousands of years exactly um Interesting thing I've heard um, several times, different podcasts, different videos, things like that, is that people um, that take these high-powered psychedelics, so people that will take like DMT, um, will have these experiences where they meet meet God, essentially, and they have a lot of the same experiences and a lot of the same descriptions that come from religions. And so like that, I I don't know what to make of that, essentially, like... Uh, they talk about it a lot on um, on certain podcasts, like uh, Lex Friedman. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He talks about it. Um, Joe Rogan used to talk about it in the past um, when he would talk about. He, he might still do it, but they're like they would do these like high powered psychedelics and then have these you know these realizations of like universal consciousness, like this uh, you know like figurehead that feels like God that they meet and things like that, and and it, it almost seems like. Well, then there's also a lot of um, a lot of historical context that that goes to show that a lot of um, these religions used to use these psychedelics like mushrooms, like um, the peyote cactus. They would use these things to in their ceremonies, like the the shamans in in like um, you know in like what is like now modern day Mexico, like Arizona and stuff would would um, guide people through these trips with the peyote cactus or the San Pedro cactus, and then uh, you know there there was um, there was uh, many uh, accounts that like whenever they would talk about um, I think it's in Christianity they would talk about like a, a small little sip of wine that would you know essentially. Um, you know, transform their whole perspective on things. And it wasn't, what they argue is it wasn't 
actually wine, like that small little bit of what you know, alcohol wouldn't actually do anything to you. They were they make the argument that that small um, bit of of wine or, or whatever it was was like actually a psychedelic that would that would cause these people to you know actually like experience spirituality and and things like that firsthand. Um, and then, of course, there's other other religions, especially in like Buddhism, where you can meditate and kind of get to that same that same area. Um, I don't know. I just I, I don't know. I, I just kind of want to see if you've run into any of those similar things, like as far as like your history goes, like looking into things. Um, have you? You know, I guess it, it also it it doesn't take away from. I think it adds to the fact that if there is this you know, omnipresent creator, omnipresent, like God, um, that I think that it kind of goes to show that these people that, you know, maybe are atheist agnostic, but take these drugs and then meet it. It's like, it is really there, you know? So I don't know. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, that's a really interesting one from my perspective. So everything is going to come down to a psychological state that we can be in. So if, we're having interaction with God that means us being in a particular kind of psychological state and I think that there's a lot of different ways to be in that psychological state um, fasting it's going to totally change yeah. your psychology um, and to me what it all comes down to is it's not that you're it's not that fasting or taking mushrooms is going to cause you to see God but rather that those things could cause you to be able to see God. Okay. If 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 you know what I mean. Yeah. Like it's not causing God to appear. Yeah. It's just making it could make us receptive to see God. Yeah. It could also make us be receptive in my mind, it could be make us be receptive to see some kind of demonic spirit that's yeah, pretending right. to be God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. I was just curious what you thought of that because I, had, you know, I'd seen stuff like that in the past, and it, it almost argued to me that there is this, like, it, it would almost argue to me that there is this creator, this thing that everyone, you know, is kind of, um, you know, drawn to essentially. Well, I would say, I mean, it, the Book of Genesis says that God created basically everything, mm-hmm. and and the Book of John goes on to confirm that again. So, if God created everything, and it, furthermore, Book of Genesis says it's good. It serves some kind of purpose. So in my mind, anything that is a natural plant that exists, there can be some purpose that's used for it. Yeah. And so And you can abuse that, absolutely. Yeah. But you can also use it for something that could be good. And it also makes you wonder, like, why, why does a mushroom or why does a cactus have that chemical inside of it that's going to, like, really mess your not mess it up but it's really gonna put you out of your mental state where you normally you know really destabilizes you i guess what's the point like why why would something like that specific be in in a cactus in a mushroom in a in a mold like ergot um like a, a you know things like that like that's what they say the salem witch trials all the people that were going crazy in salem was because there was like um, the ergot, which is, I guess it's like a fungus essentially, or like a mold that grows on um, grains. And they said it was like an exceptionally wet year or two there. And so the hypothesis is all of those grain, uh, all those different grains had grown ergot on it. And then one of the 
uh, active compounds in ergot is essentially what is LSD. And so all of these people are essentially tripping yeah. on LSD and then they're, you know, being called witches, whatever. Whether it's the guys that are tripping on LSD and thinking that like everyone else is acting crazy or vice vice versa, where it's like actually the you know the women are and they're being called witches, whatever. But like it's interesting to see how much this stuff like historically may have played into um, you know played into uh, you know humanity essentially. Yeah. Um, so so you got drawn back into kind of into Christianity not because someone pushed you into it or whatever but you just kind of picked up the Bible on your own and you'd seen that you know you kind of resonate with some of the stuff that it, that you'd been reading yeah um, and now um, you know like now do you go to church do you do things like that or is it kind of like your, your own like self driven to, to kind of learn you know everything that's in the Bible you can kind of learn from yourself yeah, I've gone, I don't go to church. Sometimes I go regularly, sometimes I don't. Um, so I went pretty regularly when I was in North Carolina. I sing in the choir. Um, went pretty regular when I was up in Maine. Here, um, I actually go to the Mennonite church here. I don't go all the time, um, but I'll go for periods. So I've kind of seen, I even went to the Universalist church and stuff when I was up in Maine. So I've kind of experienced like the most liberal versus the most conservative with the Mennonites here. Um, and just kind of for me church is a social gathering mm -hmm. that if it's something that you're using to justify yourself or to look good or get some kind of points then therein is your reward mm -hmm. but if you're having some kind of spiritual interaction it's important for you to do it you should do it so yeah. that's kind of how I feel it's almost like it. a place you can go where if you have questions it's not so weird to just ask somebody you know, you don't want to just go to the grocery store and say, hey, man, can you talk to me about Jesus? Yeah. But if you go to the church, you know, it's like, hey, I was reading this. You know, this seems pretty interesting. Like, what do you know about it? And, and you know, what are your thoughts on it? It's a little bit more accepted to do that. In yeah. Church, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's cool, man. Um, <clears throat> let's switch gears then. Let's talk about kind of future for you and current. I know you're working on this YouTube channel. Um, you got, what, four or five videos out now, right? Um, what's kind of your goals there and where do you see yourself going in the future? Um, I mean, got a pretty comfortable place here. Um, do you see yourself staying here for a while? I know family, you know, kind of moved back to North Carolina, right? Um, so where do you see yourself going and, uh, and what are you trying to do with this YouTube channel? Yeah, so I kind of just realized that what I wanted to do is try to improve myself as much as I could and then be the best example I could be. And so um, it just feels like being here, this is, this is the place that I want to be. So I want to be able to do that based out of here. Um, and so for me, the one way is with having this place, I want, really want to expand it more, have more services here, um, and really have it be like a healing center. Um, but I also, you know, as far as with the YouTube thing, I do like I feel like I'm kind of wasting something if I'm not sharing my perspectives on these political things because I think that God has kind of led me through all these experiences to teach you to teach me so what I want to do with the channel is honestly I really want to expand this channel um, I want it I want it to reach the point where it's monetized 
Um, and what I want to do with it is first of all to teach myself but also I want to use it to give people a perspective that in my mind is going to be most conducive for them learning themselves mm. um, so I want to put out information that maybe people haven't thought of that's going to make them think that can hopefully clarify any situation but I also then want to set up an avenue for for people not to just observe things but to actually do things for themselves mm. um, and so the other thing I want to do with this channel is I want to use it as a way to build more connections with people from all around the country, all around the world, and then tie that back into what I'm doing here. Okay. Yeah. So cool. ultimately, <laughs> the whole thing is like me trying to be a good example, and then bringing people together that are ex good examples, and hopefully through that, maybe coming up with these million people that we need. Yeah. <laughs> good examples. We need yeah, we do need those people. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Yeah. Congrats on you know getting the channel up and running. I know that is a task in and of itself. Getting the you know, basically your studio space set up and everything. Um, so where can people find you on YouTube, whatever, you know, if they want to try and find you, they want to look, watch your videos, what, what do they look up and how do they find you? Yeah, it's just Shaman Kirkland TV. So you can just Google Shaman Kirkland and you should find it. Um, I want to give a special thank you to my editor. She probably doesn't want me to say her name, but she is, it's her studio and she sets everything up oh, and nice does all the you. editing. Um, so I really appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, I encourage people to go check it out and subscribe if they like it. Just Google Shaman Kirkland and yeah. Sounds good. There'll be a lot more regular stuff coming out. Yeah. Uh, anything else you want to talk about, add in before we wrap it up? I think we're going on like a little over two hours now. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. well, one thing I would just say, I wanted to just thank you for always being a good guy, you know, throughout high school and everything like that. Um, I think it's really cool what you're doing and... Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Hey, I so. appreciate it. And likewise to you, Shaman. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, we'll definitely have to get you back on sometime. Hopefully we can get Cole home or, or you know, we can do it virtually or something and, and get, because I know Cole has a lot better questions and more questions than I do. So we got to get you back on the show sometime. Um, but thanks for joining and uh, we'll see everybody sometime soon. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can find us on Facebook at Insights of All Trades. Find us on Instagram at Insights of All Trades. Twitter is IOAT Podcast. And send us your insights via email at insightsofalltrades at gmail.com. You can also DM us if you have some insights, and we'll include you at the beginning of the podcast. Thanks again. See you soon.